the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, time travel bends the song Louie Louie around on itself through the fourth dimension until the lyrics reveal the secret location of an alien roller coaster on Mars Olympus Mines. Now we have a reason to go. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part one of an interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow, and we have Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf also stopping by this time. We discuss The Gordian Protocol, a new science fiction novel by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. It's got time travel, spaceship battles, several weird far futures, a plot to change history, believably intelligent heroes from present and future. It's a really, really fun book. And David Weber and Jacob Hollow and Tony Weisskopf talk all about it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, the Bain May eARCs are out. Now an eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book, an ebook version of the galleys that are often available three or four months before a book comes out. This is a way to get your favorite author or series new book at the uh, earliest possible time or try something delightful before everyone else. The only caveat is, like all galleys, these might have a few typos and mistakes since they haven't been quite proofread yet. Out in May in eARC format is Monster Hunter Guardian by Larry Correa and Sarah A. Hoyt. One tough mother. When the Monster Hunter International crew are called away to mount a months-long rescue mission, Julie Shackelford is left behind. Her task? Hold down the fort and take care of her new baby son, Ray. Julie's devoted to the little guy, but the slow pace of office work and maternity leave are getting to her. Then a routine field call brings her face to face with an unspeakable evil, calling itself Brother Death. She'll get more excitement than she ever hoped for, but Julie Shackelford is ready for it. Also out now in Eark is Witchy Kingdom by D.J. Butler, Season of the Witch, and Encounter with Her Father's Goddess has not turned out to be the end for Sarah Penn. Now with the imperial fist tightened around her city of Cahokia and the beast kind of the Heron King ravaging across the river, she must find a way to access the power of the serpent throne itself, a feat she has learned her father never accomplished. But Sarah may have what it takes. And finally in E-Arc right now is Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation, edited by Tom Crapman. The Bloody Path to Freedom the colony planet Terra Nova has been used by Old Earth as a dumping ground for dissidents and troublemakers. This would have been fine, but for the UN and its corrupt bureaucracy insisting on maintaining control and milking the New World and its settlers, willing and unwilling both, bone dry. Contained herein are the tales of the history of mankind's first extraterrestrial colony, from the first failed attempt at colonization to the rise in crime to the rise in terrorism to the descent into widespread civil war and rebellion, and ultimately liberation. Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation, edited by Tom Crapman. 
Witchy Kingdom by D.J. Butler, and Monster Hunter Guardian by Larry Correa and Sarah A. Hoyt are now available as eARCs exclusively at Bane eBooks. You can find those at Bane.com. Go there and check them out. This is part one of an interview with David Weber, Jacob Hollow, and Tony Weiskopf discussing the Gordian Protocol. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome David Weber and Jacob Hollow to the podcast. And we also have with us Tony Weiskopf, Bain Publisher. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series, with latest entry, The Most Excellent Uncompromising Honor, now at booksellers everywhere. David has had 29 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 8 million David Weber books in print. David is also the author of many other Bain books, including the epic fantasy Bazel series, with latest entry, Book One in the Ken Hoden subseries, Sword of the South. He's the author of The Road to Hell with Joel Presby, along with two other books in the Multiverse series. And out now, we have a very excellent new novel by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. Jacob Hollow is a former Ohioan, former Michigander, living in sunny South Carolina. He describes himself as a writer, gamer, hobbyist, and engineer who started writing after his parents bought him an IBM 286 desktop back in the 80s. He's been writing ever since. Add Booksellers Everywhere Now is The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. This is a new adventure science fiction novel set in a totally new Weber milieu with both spaceships, far future tech, and most of all, mind-bending time travel. Uh, so, David and Jacob, um, maybe maybe we'll start with, uh, with the process and then uh, get into the book. Tell us a little bit about how it came to be that... Um, that you guys collaborated on this and, and the idea for it, uh, its genesis and, and everything about the creation of the Gordian Protocol um, in its early phases. Let me just say this, before, uh, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, this, this collaboration came about for three reasons. Um, one was that this is a story that I have wanted to get written, get told for 25 years since before the first Honor Harrington novel was written, and there's never been a time or a place to do it. The second reason is that I had read um, uh, a couple of Jacob's uh, self-published novels, and I had liked them, and I uh, thought that I saw a lot of promise there. And the third is that Jacob and Heather have become two of uh, Sharon and my closest friends. Um, And one of the key ingredients to a successful collaboration is liking your collaborator. And (laughs) I like Jacob a lot. Um, And having said that those were the three main things, I would just also say that this has been a collaboration that clicked on every level uh, and that I could not have been happier with my, quote, junior partner. Um, I couldn't be happier with his work ethic, with his approach to the book, with his contributions to the book, and with where I think he's going to go uh, on his own in the fullness of time. 
Now, Jacob, having embarrassed you thoroughly, you can now <laughs> speak. Well, tell us, tell us, tell us what it was like uh, to uh, get approached by um, David to to write with him, and uh, how it came about, Jacob. Well, I'm I'm going to kind of lead up to to that with first how how we met and, and became friends. It so. This this story actually begins in in a rather dark place, and the kind of genesis of this collaboration. I don't recommend anyone else following it because it actually starts uh, with my wife uh, being diagnosed with cancer. Now Whoa. she had a um, an excision and a lymph node biopsy. Everything went very well. Uh, no. Um, um, there hasn't been a recurrence uh, of the cancer in, in the years since. Uh, so happy end to that story. Um, but she was recovering um, from them having to cut through muscle to get to the lymph nodes. And mm-hmm. she had been at home for about a week, and she was very stir-crazy. She, she wanted to get out. And she's like, hey, there's this uh, small convention going on at a college, like, 30 minutes from us. I want to go there. And I'm like, I don't know, Heather. You're, you're having trouble getting around. I'm having to, you know, escort you around the house. Let's, let's keep, you know, take it easy and, you know, rest and recover. And then she says, David Weber will be there. You can get your book signed. <laughs> and I, I get my, my old dog-eared copy of In Death Ground Out, and I look at it a little bit. I'm like, okay, okay, why not? So we go over, <laughs> we, we get into to wine at, the, uh, at David's table. He's got a box of uh, on, um, on Basilisk Station that he's handing out signed, uh, pre-signed copies. I get in line, <laughs> and I, I put uh, In Death Ground down, and I, I ask you know, him to sign it, and he takes a look at the book, and he's like, whoa. Because it was a, a clearly a well-loved <laughs> book. <laughs> he signed it, and I kind of shuffled off to the side, and we're talking to the fan club. And um, one of them tells us that, oh, you, know, you, you write? Well, the, uh, uh, the fan club, we do reading challenges. And if you know, one of your books gets read, it gets counted for double the page count. I'm like, oh, cool. This would be a way to you know, expose some additional people to the, the self-published stuff. And then they said, hey, you need to talk to Sharon, David's wife. And we're like, no, we, we do not need to bother his wife. Absolutely not. So they dragged <laughs> us over, sat us down. Sharon came over, and we talked for about an hour. Into and the dread clutches that, of the Sharon. and and after that um sharon said that uh yeah um we should do lunch sometime and we're like yeah okay sure um so a couple weeks later we met uh for lunch and four hours later (laughs) we were done talking to each other and that was basically the start of what became a very close friendship between the four of us. Sharon um, is for sure. I would, I, would, <laughs> I, would add, I would add that only that if you have never seen Heather with cabin fever, you have never seen cabin fever. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Heather, Heather is, is – I I, okay, if she were a bunny, she'd be pink. 
<laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. I'll just say, you know. Very, very full of energy. Very full of life. Yes. Yeah. And and, and uh, uh, go go, Jacob. I was going to say something, but go go so, go. So to fast forward a little bit, um, we were um, at, at dinner again. This is uh, about a year and a half, two years later, and um, it was Heather's birthday, and uh, David and I were talking, and he. he developed this look on his face. And I, up until that point, I had never seen this look before. It was like, like pure yeah. distilled mischief. Yes. The walking and, shit. <laughs> and, and then he said, I think we should write a book together. And mm. shortly after, shortly after that, um, Heather said, Hey, do, do you want dessert? And I'm like, no, because I think I'm about to throw up. <laughs> I was, I was, I was excited. I, was... I think that's a compliment, David. <laughs> so I think so. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it could have been like, oh my god, yeah, but uh, um, I, 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 I deliberately surprised him. Um, yeah. I, I'm sorry, yeah, that I don't know about that look of pure distilled mischief. I, I can't imagine anyone accuse <laughs> me of that. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd actually been thinking about it uh, for a while. Um, and I've said this before. Uh, I've said it here on Bain Podcasts, and I've said it other places. Uh, Tony, you once, years ago, when I commented that the old guard was all gone, said, no, they're not. And I said, yes, they are. And you said, no, they're not. You're the old guard. And I thought, no, 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 no. I will agree to be the middle guard. I won't be the old guard. Um, but I sold my first book to you guys 30 years ago this year. Um, yeah. yeah. And and you were 14 when you bought it. Okay. Approximately, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, see? Um, and uh, so I really have been doing this for a while. Um, I've developed uh, some skill sets and a lot of experience that people Jacob's age, I won't say what his age is, but it's almost 30 years less than mine. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I'll just leave it at that, you know. Um, the, the Jacob has, I think, a very, very, very large amount of talent as a storyteller. Um, he has not yet had the opportunity to develop his his skill set to match his ability to put stories together, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I saw here, and I've done this with a couple of other people, is to see, you know, this is somebody who can do this And if I have been fortunate enough to achieve the degree of success that I've achieved, and if I've acquired the skill set and so forth, then there's some pay it forward going on here for me. If I could take somebody who, who has that ability, and the fact that I like him a lot doesn't hurt, okay, and sit down and work with him and get a story told, that will be probably better than the story I would have told on my own because of the synergistic effect of having a different viewpoint in it. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, 
help to grow that skill set for the other writer, that's a win-win-win situation as far as I'm concerned. As I say, the friendship that we've developed uh, is, you know, it's, it's icing on the cake uh, for that in some ways. Um, in terms of the process involved, not in terms of the personal enjoyment, the, 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 the actual joy, not just enjoyment like it was a good time, but the joy that I took in watching this book come together and seeing Jacob's contributions to it slotting into place as we went along. Um, my my concern is always for the reader, uh, the you know, the the end product, making sure that the reader is going to have a good time, and uh, uh, that's that. It's nice to see that come together, where you get, as you say, the synergy uh, with with two authors, um, and I, and I think the uh, the more experienced author paired with the younger author, um, you get uh, you get a little element of challenge uh, as well. Um, there, there's no resting on your laurels when you are trying to make a point. And that's, uh, yeah, this is something that Jim Bain obviously perfected, um, when, uh, when he was alive and, uh, setting things up. And it's nice to see these collaborations and this, this method. Well, I have to say that one of the reasons why this method, this particular method, uh, uh appeals to me as much as it does is John Ringo mm-hmm. because really what he and I were doing back when he was the baby on the block and not the 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 grumpy old man star that he is today um, <laughs> because we we were I, we were looking at John had tremendous tremendous storytelling skills I mean my God could he tell a story the problem was that he didn't yet have the 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 uh, the skill set to translate that into a written medium as successfully as those stories deserve to be translated. And he had a scary, fast learning curve. So does Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I think uh, you know, and I, I will say this, um, Jacob and I have talked about this on other podcasts and with each other. One of the things that was really, really nice about this collaboration is the way that our different backgrounds came together because I'm the historian, I'm the, 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 the sociologist, if you will, though I hate that term, uh, of, of the team. I'm the person who builds, uh, builds uh, societies and historical templates. Jacob is our hard science guy. He's the number cruncher. He's an engineer with BMW in his, in his day job um, and a very successful one. Um, and, um, so when we sat down to write this book, I told Jacob that I wanted him to create our 30th century societies in it. Which which I have to say was, it was a huge draw for me. I I really enjoyed those scenes and, uh, and the, the feel of the 30th century uh, society. It, It felt uh, far future, and I, yeah, I got that 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 lovely tingly sense of wonder from it. So uh, that that was that was that was lovely. The truth is, at mission time here, he does it better than I do it. <laughs> I do it very well from the from the the perspective of the the underlying political motivations, the underlying societal motivations, and what human beings are doing. 
Jacob does it far better from the perspective of taking the 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 technological goodies. There were cool. There was cool stuff there. I like the cool stuff. <laughs> so much cool stuff in there, um, and and some of it probably would have occurred to me, but it would have been hidden in the background, the way that it is in the honorverse, where nobody ever actually talks about it, doesn't bring it full forward into the into the forefront of the book, like the AI and the honorverse and that kind of thing. Um, but Jacob just he he captured the ooh-shiny aspect of the 30th century for me beautifully in this book. And I say for me as a reader, as well as as a writing partner, it was cool. Working on the notes, the um, the first pass of the notes, you had, uh, you had first um, kind of sketched out what the two societies, kind of their roles in the story, and kind of give me the, the borders and I then was like, okay, fill in the space between these borders. And I remember thinking to myself that, uh, all right, I know what David's response to a lot of this is going to be, and it's that I, I need to tone down the crazy, but I'm going to put it in here and let them look at it anyway. And I sent it off to you, and you pretty much loved all of it. Like, oh, yeah. man, this collaboration is going to be so much fun. <laughs> well, Jacob, one, one of the things, and I've said this to you before, uh, but one of the things that I definitely wanted was a different feel for those advanced societies from the ones that I've created in the past. Well, can you guys tell us a little bit about uh, the, the what what the story is? Let's dive into the story. How about um, maybe I could just ask you a question that would that would set you both that could set you both off. What is the edge of existence? Ah, okay. Um, the egg, shall, the shall edge. I take? The, yeah, you go ahead and take this one. All right. So the edge of existence. Um, it actually there there are a few. Um, there are a few names for it that uh, we use throughout the novel to, to help uh, the reader with the, the concept of it. We also call it the age of the universe and the true present. So essentially, there is a kind of uh, master clock, if you were, for the entire multiverse. And this, that point in time, the edge of existence, that's as far as that clock has gone. So that is, in, in our story, the 30th century. This is as old as the universe is. There is no future past that. You can't, you can't go to well, the 31st the, century. You can, there, is a future, there is a future. We just can't get to it. <laughs> right. Yeah, what I mean is that, okay, this isn't where the universe ends, as in it right. will not extend yeah. beyond this point. And that's something that I think a couple of folks who have talked to me about the book are like, wait, you mean it ends after Raybert's time no matter what? And I'm like, no. It just means that Raybert cannot, that Raybert and his people can't cross the curb into events which have not yet happened in the absolute sense. But, but for instance, people from our age, which is one of our main characters, um, can go up and down the timeline from the 30th century all the way back to whenever, Caesar or whatever, uh, in, right? And that's the way that your time travel protocol works. 
yeah, that's because those events have happened. I I think of it, as, you know, Jacob is talking very accurately and correctly about this is the edge of existence is the age the universe has achieved. Okay, I think of yes. it as this is the point at which all the quantum possibilities have settled out. And everything on the other side of this is still a potentiality that hasn't happened yet um, and can't happen until the universe catches up with it. Um, the, 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 from a storytelling perspective, the key point is that this is the curb. You can't go forward beyond the edge of existence and ask your future self a question in order to solve uh, a, a problem in your present. Okay, and according to the theory of everything, which the 30th century <laughs> that Raybert comes from has evolved, uh, and which, as Jacob points out, they left out a few footnotes to. Um, Just a they, few footnotes. <laughs> yeah, they've also demonstrated that you can't go back into the past and ask yourself a question and change it. They, they have demonstrated that past events are immutable. You can go back, you can interact with the past, you can appear to change the past, but as soon as you remove yourself from that equation, everything goes back to the way it was with a sort of temporal inertia that erases your intrusion into it, which is why the book pretty much uh, opens uh, with uh, a raid on the uh, the Great Library of Alexandria by ETs, which are actually 30th century archaeologists perfectly prepared to slaughter as many people as it takes in order to rescue the books of the Great Library for the 30th century because they can kill anybody they want and nobody will stay dead, right? Well, no, not really. <laughs> they thought it was right. It was the way it had always worked before, wasn't it? And... and um, who was Jacob? Who's the guy, the 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 originator of the of the the time travel theory, who's still around, and who is saying, "Wait, wait, I think maybe there's something in the math you guys are missing." The 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 crank uh, who's become a connectome. Do you remember his name? Because I've been trying to think what it is, and I can't remember him. Uh, that's that's Chen. Okay, Chen. yeah, with the with the with the with the with the the, the synthoid body with the yep, yep. numbers mm -hmm. crawling all over his skin. Yes, he's a cool guy, yep. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is something that our main character. Let's talk about our main character um, or our main characters. We have two two sets of main characters, basically uh, a set from our present. Um, our reader present and a set from uh, uptime and um, Raybert Kaminsky has reacted against this sort of uh, the, the, the organizations called art right that works for uh, his government which is Cisco uh, a, a great Weberian sort of formulation if you ask me um, and uh, I, okay okay art stands for uh, archaeological Rescue Trust. Antiquities. Antiquities. Antiquities, Antiquities. Rescue Trust. And they, they go back and they, they collect things like the Colossus of Rhodes to bring it to the 30th century where it can be properly appreciated. Yeah. Raybert has, has um, even if nothing has changed, they're still gunning down hundreds of people, slaughtering them. Um, it's sort of aesthetically displeasing, right? <laughs> At least to his sensibilities. Okay, Jacob. Let me let me let me take this first, and then you 
correct me if I'm wrong, because this is really a part of Raybert's character that Jacob built more than I did, and that I think really adds to who Raybert is. Okay, um, Raybert's objection to the the massacre of the of the past has two elements, one of which was part of him all all along in my thinking, and part of which one of which is is Jacob uh, riffing on the theme. I had visualized him as thinking that this is an archaeology, this is this is demolition work. To really understand these people, we should be using our ability to time travel to do what he does, which is to insert himself into the past, affect it as little as possible, and watch what actually happened. And he does this. He does. He's done this in some cases by being multiple individuals in different iterations of the same event. Because it never changes, he can always go back and start it over again. So he is the. Uh, he's the historian, not the smash and grab artist, which is how he kind of thinks of the antiquities rescue people. Um, so that's part of it. He's seeing this ability to actually learn about the past as opposed to this ability to loot the past and put it in a museum, okay? And that was a critical part of who he was when I was first visualizing the character. All right, well, as Jacob started working with the character, what also evolved here is I'd always regarded Raybert as being a moral human being, you know, etc. But Jacob picked up on that, and he was dealing with how does a moral human being who hasn't allowed himself to decide that this is all some huge VR game, it doesn't matter because they're all going to be alive in the end anyway, how does he react to the consequences, if only for the people carrying out the atrocities? Yeah. How does he react to them? Okay. How does he respond to them in terms of the morality of what they're doing. And even if you assume that nobody in the past even knows it happened because after all, they all reset, it's still affecting the people from the 30th century who are doing it. And where do you go with that? Okay. And Jacob inserted that aspect into this book. I thought the next best thing to brilliantly, uh, to, to, to add that dimension, that dimensionality, to Raybert. It was something I'd always realized was there in the back of my brain, but Jacob brought it front and center very, very well. well Raybert is um, not just a per single individual. I mean, he's, he's in a very, or put it this way, he's in a very intimate relationship with another being um, called Philosophus or Philo. Um, what Tell us about how I mean, this is what we were talking about previously. This is one of the the main aspects of of, of 30th century society. Um, well, the connectomes in their visualization here um, are uh, actually more Jacobs than mine. Um, I had uh, Raybert's relationship with his time machine, Cleo. Uh, pretty firmly nailed down in my brain, and that stayed about where I expected it to be. Um, I hadn't really planned on a six-foot-six, red-haired, bearded Viking to be hanging around looking over Raybert's shoulder everywhere that he went. Um, and and this 
guy I was working with who wears a bow tie and suspenders all the time uh, <laughs> injected this 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 hulking guy um, who is um, I love the the horns on his helmet because the function of the horns on his avatar's helmet is to serve as kind of a filtering mechanism. If you tell him, you know, real Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets, he realizes you may be worth talking to. And otherwise, <laughs> he doesn't have to pay much attention to you. Um, but, Jacob, you you really built the connectomes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, it was, uh, you know, I was... Building the, uh, you know, one of the 30th century um, templates, one being Cisco, the other one being the admin. And, you know, dealing with um, how to handle um, AI and any AI characters uh, that we might uh, introduce. And um, I I honestly don't know where the idea uh, for the, the, the really – you know, integrated companionship between a physical citizen and an abstract citizen came from. Um, but somehow it, it, Jacob, it, it, uh, it, 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 okay. You, you first, okay. We were having a conversation and you first mentioned the, 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 the connectomes and how you were, how you were looking yep. at mm-hmm. Hannah. This was before you'd got me the written notes. Um, and we had one of those kind of patented David ooh shiny moments um when because we'd already been planning on their having uh being fully wet weared up so that they have neural interfacing. And I said something that sent you down this rabbit hole uh about if they have if they have wet wear, does it work both ways? that's what it was. I said does it work both ways? Yeah. Humans can mm-hmm. can fully integrate with the with the, the electronic beings can they fully integrate with uh the their physical partner's senses and whatnot and you got kind of a uh <laughs> i i hesitate to say this but a, a jacob ooh shiny moment look in your <laughs> eyes um and and i think that that's where it, that's where it all started i think yeah right yeah there. I, I think i think you're right that the uh the sharing of the senses and you know where where that could go in the different different permutations of it, like how, um, you know, Philo as a, a digital existence, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't experience food, but through uh, Rybert's senses, he can, he can experience food. And this is one of the things that they, you know, they enjoy is, is, yeah, right. uh, is sharing a meal together and, and literally sharing the same taste. Yeah. Um, uh, Philo is, Philo is a gourmand. And the day that he and uh, and 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 Raybert meet, um, uh, at that moment, Philo is unattached. He had a bad relationship. Uh, it turns out later that it was even worse than the reader thought at that point. But anyway, he he is unattached, and he's sort of standing around manifesting because Raybert's you know his 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 wetware allows him to see this entire virtual. Uh, uh, universe around him, which is embroidered on the physical universe. I think it's one of the things that uh, Jacob did best in some of the some of the early scenes. Um, I say early scenes because once he once I'd seen what he was doing, there's actually a few places when I was editing where I went back and did more of it. But anyway, um, the <laughs> he meets he meets Philo and tells him, you know that uh, that 
Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets. And Philo was like, okay, we can talk a little bit, I guess. Um, and and Philo was just staring moodily at this table of canapes. Right, <laughs> what what seems to be the problem? He says, you know, I, I you know I can't. I, I can't taste them. And Raybert says, I thought you would have like, you know, stored memories. And, and Philo says, I do. And he conjures up this like enormous steak that's like smoking, cooked exactly correctly. And then he shoves the entire steak into his mouth, which, of course, he can grow, expand wherever it wants to be and swallows and says, see, nothing but photons. <laughs> you know? And I thought, I thought, okay. <sighs> <laughs> <clears throat> so 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 they're buddies but it's it, it's a 30th 30th century version of buddies. Uh I think yeah. it, I think it actually is deeper than that. Well, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm I I don't I don't mean to to undercut that relationship, but I think that's where it starts. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's Definitely. certainly fair. Um I would say that the difference between uh, Raybert's relationship with Philo and his ultimate relationship with um, with Benjamin um, and and Elsbieta is that he and Philo have the ability to actually meld, not not to lose the barriers between who they are, the boundaries between who they are but to actually interact on a level that is the next best thing to telepathy so that they understand one another uh, in a way that is pretty much impossible through the interface of of speech. Um, And these are two guys, either one of whom they would probably be horribly embarrassed to say it but either one of these 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 guy these people and they're both people even though even though Philo was was born out of electronics they're both people either one of them would die for the other one um, absolutely and, and I think that's a fundamental part of who they are they don't talk about it i mean they you know they oh come on buddy you know kind of thing well, they, I mean, the the banter between them is part of the the delight that you find in the book because it really it's um, they rank on each other all the time. I mean, they're like um, they're they're always after each other, trying to. Uh, um, it, it's humorous and it um, it feels like intimates who know each other really well, um, the way that they talk to each other. Yeah. Well, there's also. Um Raybert undergoes what you might call a catastrophic involuntary physical change in the course of this book. (laughs) Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! (laughs) Yeah, Um, but but Philo puts everything he has on the line to rescue Raybert from where he is. Now there are there are there are external factors that make this necessary, but you can tell from the way this is going down that Philo is doing this, you know, yeah, sure, okay, so 16 universes are going to die if we don't do this, but that he is he is invested in doing this on the personal level of this is his friend. 
Um, this is there are there are zero uh, uh, sexual connotations in 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 Philo's relationship with Raybert, but this really is in in some ways a lover going to the mat to to get back this person who is so incredibly important to him. Okay. That was part one of an interview with David Weber, Jacob Hollow, and Tony Weiskopf talking about the Gordian Protocol. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. By the time the eastern horizon was beginning to turn orange, Ashok reached the river. He heard it long before he saw it, a deep, energetic sound. The ground around the river was marshy and covered in tall reeds. He moved across the dry bits of land until he stood at the bank. Here the river was wide, cold, swift-moving death. He tossed a stick in the water and watched as it was swept away instantly. Ashok could fight anything that walked on land or crawled out of the sea and have a good chance of winning. But he knew he'd perish if he tried to make it across that. Even then, it was tempting. It would be simple. He could drive Angruvadal into the ground to wait for its next bearer, then step over the edge and let the water have him. He knew from watching the Inquisitors torture witches that drowning was painful, but a relatively quick way to die. Eventually, his bloated, soggy corpse would be carried out to hell for the demons to devour. That would be decisive and final. Nothing like the harsh, lingering punishment the capital had dreamed up for him. Ashok put one hand on his sword. I can't dishonor you like that. He stepped away from the bank. In the distance, there was a dark shape in front of the rising sun. 
It was taller than the fog, and the lines were too straight to be part of nature. A tower. Probably a checkpoint. And if there was a checkpoint, that meant there was a bridge. Ashok set out toward it, carefully picking his way through the tall reeds. No one could be allowed to stop him, and he had no traveling papers. So sneaking across was preferable to fighting. He'd ruined enough lives already. Creeping forward through the mud and weeds until he was close enough to get a clear view of the checkpoint, Ashok could see that the squat tower was made of red bricks. The silhouette of a single archer was visible on top. Next to the tower was a small wooden barracks, and from the size there couldn't be more than a handful of warriors stationed here. No stable or feed, so they didn't even have horses to pursue him if he was seen. The final building was the arbiter's office. Smoke was rising from the chimney. Other than the single archer, he saw no other guards. Hopefully most of them were still asleep. Behind the buildings was the bridge, and he could see why they'd built it here. The ground was higher and the river narrower. So the wooden bridge was shorter and tall enough for the local barges to move beneath it freely. A large raft, covered in barrels and crates, was moving toward the bridge. There were figures on both sides, pushing their way against the current with long poles. Ashok didn't know if those who moved cargo on the rivers were castless, or if there were any workers low enough to have an obligation so awful. On the opposite shore was a small village consisting of a trading post and a handful of buildings. As much as the idea of stealing disgusted him, he would have to find food there. Even with the heart to sustain him, all of his running had left him famished. Ashok assessed the options. It was tempting to just run across, but the last thing he wanted to do was cause these warriors to give chase. Since the bridge was constructed of crossed wooden beams, he could probably climb across the bottom, staying out of the archer's view, but he couldn't see the underside from his current position. The archer was looking in the opposite direction, so Ashok moved out of the reeds and made his way through the tall grass toward the bridge. A dog began barking. The sudden noise shattered the quiet morning. Ashok froze. The archer turned toward the sound, which was coming from behind the arbiter's building. The barking stopped abruptly, turned into a whine, and then that was cut off as well, as if someone had grabbed the dog by the snout and squeezed its mouth shut. Sinking as low as he could into the grass, Ashok called upon the heart of the mountain, but this time to heighten his senses rather than his stamina. Immediately his exhaustion magnified, and he was nothing but a skin sack of aching muscles stitched together with pain. But sounds and scents seemed to grow stronger. He could hear the rolling of water over the rocks below, the chirp and clicks of insects. Even the muted thumps of the barge poles as they punctured the unseen muck. A horse snorted. That distant sound had come from a copse of trees, a quarter mile behind the tower. 
when he focused in on that area, he made out other noises. The creaking of leather. Saddles and gloves twisting on spear shafts. And the ping and rattle of armor. Warriors were waiting for him. It made no sense. How could they know? There was no way a messenger could have gotten here ahead of him. His initial thought was to circle back and ambush the ambushers, but these were Vidal men, fulfilling their obligation, and Ashok was the lawbreaker. Enough killing. There had to be another way across the river. He would find a hole to hide in until nightfall, and then try again. Ashok had made it back to the edge of the reeds when he heard a new noise echoing from the direction he'd come from, horses and hounds and lots of them. The vibrations and sounds were distant, but they were heading this way. If they were coming from the prison, they'd have his scent. There would be no hiding from those dogs, and he'd have no choice but to fight. Even drastically outnumbered, he would more than likely win, but in doing so, lose. Ashok looked toward the bridge. It was now or never. Calling upon the heart was instinctive. And as the distant sounds faded, so did his physical weakness. Quivering muscles became strong again. A quick glance confirmed that the archer was looking away, so Ashok bolted for the bridge, moving as fast as he could. The dog began barking again. The road here was made of tiny, sharp stones, and the gravel crunched beneath his bare feet. The archer heard the noise, turned, and began shouting. Immediately, the door of the arbiter's building flew open, and far too many soldiers poured out, bows already strung and arrows knocked, eager for a fight. How had they known? Still sprinting, Ashok grabbed hold of Angruvadal and pulled the terrible sword from its sheath. Immediately, it suggested a hundred ways for him to annihilate every potential threat. But Ashok kept running. The archer in the tower let fly first. Instinct told him when and how to turn, and the shaft of the arrow exploded into splinters as Angruvadal struck it from the sky. He dodged left and right as several other bowstrings thrummed. The soles of his feet struck wood as arrows embedded themselves in the bridge. Something tugged inside his mind, and Ashok knew to always listen to the sword's warnings. He threw himself to the side, behind the first of the bridge supports, as an arrow flew through the space where his head had been. Thump, thump. He could feel the impacts as more arrows struck the wood at his back. He stepped out, took in the releasing strings, the flashes of red fletching, and a picture of the future formed in his mind. Ignoring the ones that would miss him anyway, he turned Angruvadal in his hand, an extension of his destructive will, and he intercepted the speeding arrows. Several shafts split into kindling in a series of black flashes, and Ashok remained standing unharmed. That so unnerved a couple of the warriors that they stopped shooting, but most of them were already drawing more arrows from their quivers. Behind the arbiter's building, someone blew a horn to alert the horsemen. Ashok turned 
and ran. The great bridge was a hundred yards long. He was halfway across it in a few heartbeats, but had to stop so suddenly that it put splinters into his feet when he saw that there were warriors on the other side as well. They'd been concealed in the village until the horn had sounded, and now they were spilling out of the workers' huts. Archers and halberdiers, both. Ashok looked back toward the tower. The waiting cavalry had come thundering out of the distant trees. He was surrounded. The barking war dog had escaped its handler and was running after him. It was a large, brown beast, a hundred pounds of angry muscle and sharp teeth. Such an animal could easily take down a normal man and rend the life from him. Ashok waited patiently for the war dog to catch up, and then he snap-kicked it in the mouth. It yelped as it flipped over the railing to tumble into the river far below. He turned back toward the village. The halberdiers had formed two ranks, shoulder to shoulder, and begun their advance. The archers were behind them, waiting for the order to engage. Let me pass, Ashok shouted. Arizalda was standing behind the line. Surrender or die! One of the archers either slipped or mistook his officer's response as a command to release. Angry, Ashok watched the lone arrow come speeding in, then reached up and caught it. He snapped it in his fist, then let both pieces drop to clatter against the boards. That put a stutter in the halberdier's march. Do you know who I am? You're the Black Heart. But no criminal is a match for the Sutpo garrison, the officer proclaimed. His men let up a nervous cheer. That only made it worse. Ashok didn't want to kill anyone, especially warriors that had such courage and commitment to duty. Surrender or perish, lawbreaker! And Gruvedal painted another picture in his head, showing how prior bearers had survived situations similar to this. A plan was presented, and he saw himself charging, moving between the halberds and cutting a swath of blood through the village, leaving a pile of dead warriors behind him. No. With Ashok stubbornly refusing to kill innocent men, and Gruvedal had no other answer to give him. I cannot surrender. The arrows fell like rain. In a flash of black steel, Ashok dodged and struck more shafts from the air. When he tried to keep moving, he realized that his foot was pinned to the bridge. An arrow had gotten through his defenses, and the shaft had gone cleanly through the top of his foot and embedded itself deep in the wood. He tugged, but that only caused a flash of pain so sharp that it nearly staggered him. While they prepared the next volley, Ashok bent down, took hold of the arrow, snapped the end off, and then carefully lifted his foot. The wooden shaft disappeared through a red hole that quickly filled with blood. At least they were using narrow, armor-piercing tips instead of broad heads. Wincing, he set his bloody foot down, and then limped to the edge of the bridge and looked down at the swift-moving river. 
The big cargo barge was directly below him. But it was a long drop. Hooves hit one side of the bridge while armored boots hit the other. The fierce whistle rose again as the morning filled once more with flying death. But by the time the arrows landed, Ashok was already falling. He hit the barge hard, smashed through an empty crate, and collided with the logs beneath, hard enough to shake the entire craft. Ropes snapped and water sprayed over him. Bones had cracked, but none had snapped off to poke through his skin, so he could continue. When Ashok stood up, the small crew were staring stupidly at the man who'd fallen out of the sky. The two with the poles were obviously castless, but they must have been eating well since they were fit and appeared strong from their labor. The third and final one was a worker. He was a tiny man, probably a licensed overseer, since he was openly carrying a short sword. But when that cheap little iron pig sticker was drawn free and fearfully pointed in Ashok's direction, and Gruvedal instantly slapped it from his hands, and there was a splash as the cheap sword landed in the river. The warriors were swarming the bridge above, there wasn't much time. Can you swim? Ashok demanded. The two castlers nodded, yes. Of course fish eaters knew how to do something so undignified. But the frightened worker just squeaked a sound that sounded like no. The edge of the barge was only twenty feet from the nearest bank, and he wasn't very big for a whole man. Very well, Ashok said, as he sheathed Angruvadal grabbed hold of the struggling worker by the belt and the collar, spun him hard and flung him across the distance. He almost made it. Probably would have if not for all that flailing. But from the size of the splash and the clack of rocks beneath, the worker had landed in the shallows. He came up thrashing and gasping, scrambling to get out of the water. One castless took the hint and had already dived into the river by the time Ashok turned back, but the other one was pointing at him. It's you. You're the one the keepers have been preaching about. You've truly come to free us. Ashok snatched the pole from his hands and then kicked the babbling castless over the side. He disappeared with a splash. The barge swayed beneath his feet. It was a very uncomfortable feeling. As soon as the castless had stopped pushing against it, the current was already carrying the barge back the way it had come, but not nearly fast enough. Thunk. Above, archers were sticking their bows over the side. Ashok jammed the pole down and felt it stick in the mire. Then he pushed with all his might, sending the barge spinning away from the bridge. He didn't have to have Angruvedal in his hand to feel its warning, and he ducked behind a stack of barrels as more arrows came streaking in. He kept one hand on the pole as it dragged through the water, because if he lost that, he'd have no way to steer. All he could do was hope that no missiles struck his exposed arm. His cover blocked most of the arrows, but a lucky head slipped through a crack to stab him in the hip. Within seconds, the barge was bristling with arrows. It was a large, slow target. Ashok peeked over the wood, through the new forest of shafts, and saw that some warrior had gotten the bright idea of lighting fire arrows. 
A torch was swinging back and forth, setting fire to oil-soaked rags. They must have been prepared to ignite the bridge rather than let him pass. Good for them. The cavalry was wheeling their horses around and galloping back so they could follow him along the shore. This cumbersome raft would have to land somewhere, and they would be waiting for him. Ashok grabbed hold of the arrow stuck in his hip, but the tip was embedded in his pelvis and didn't want to come free. Prying now might crack the bone, and that would slow him down too much to outrun a horse, so he left it there. He got out from behind cover, dragged the pole up, and then jammed it down again, pushing the raft further from the bridge. Normally, two men did this, but he was working with the current rather than against it, and Ashok was far stronger than any two castlers put together. More arrows flew past him, but he focused on getting out of their range rather than trying to block or dodge them. Flaming arrows began to fall on the barge. That was the kind of quick-thinking initiative Ashok had always liked to see the warrior caste officers exercise against criminals. In normal circumstances, he'd order a commendation for such cleverness. But it wasn't so pleasant being on the receiving end. The bulbous fire arrows weren't as accurate and had shorter range, so some landed in the river in bursts of steam. But the barge was an easy target, so many more were sticking in the wood. Thankfully, the barge was so damp that the fires weren't catching. A fire arrow struck the lashed-down pile of barrels. He'd been concentrating so hard on the physical struggle that he'd neglected to pay sufficient attention to his surroundings. A thick liquid was dripping from where the barrels had been struck. A strong smell hit his nostrils. Words had been roughly stenciled on the barrels. Lantern oil. Already leaking from the earlier hits, the barrels burst into flames. Ashok drew and Gruvedal, and in one movement, he sliced through the thick ropes lashing the barrels down. He had to get them off before... A barrel burst. There was a roar and a flash as the oil ignited. The concussion nearly knocked him over the side. Ashok found himself face down, one arm in the river, and he flinched and jerked his hand out. He sprang up to discover that his ragged shirt had caught fire. He shrugged out of it and hurled it away, only to find that his long, matted hair had caught fire as well. He smacked it out as he assessed the damage. Nearly the entire barge was burning. He'd lost the pole, and it was floating away. Smoke was obscuring the bridge. He couldn't steer and was at the mercy of the current. The sound of impacts told him that the warriors were still firing arrows. A puddle of flaming lantern oil was eating its way toward him. Ropes were snapping as the logs making up the barge's backbone spread apart. He didn't know if he'd be immolated first or if the barge would sink before the fire got him. He was going to have to enter the water. Ashok sheathed his sword. Forgive me, Angruvadal, but I must submerse you in evil. At the edge of the barge, he paused, the evil water just beneath his feet. He knew what he had to do, but part of him didn't want to comply. The idea of vanishing beneath the surface was repellent. May 
maybe I can feel fear after all. And then an arrow struck Ashok square in the back. The river rushed up to meet him. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf for stopping by. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a vortex of straight A's meeting an anticyclone of differential equations, which everybody knows precipitates cotton candy and merit scholars. Plus thanks, praise, and plaudits to David Weber and Jacob Hollow, authors of The Gordian Protocol. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 